Hey everybody, I have an announcement. My new book, Traumatized, is available for pre-order now. In it, I cover PTSD and complex PTSD, the symptoms we can experience when we have been traumatized, and of course, ways we can overcome these and heal. There is honestly too much helpful information in this book to list it all, but if you've ever wondered if you've been traumatized or are working to overcome past trauma, this book is for you. I cannot wait for it to be out in the world and help anyone suffering, so please pre-order yours today at katiemorton.com. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know. Ask Katie anything. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. Um, I'm Katie Morton. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, and that's why I answer all of your mental health questions here. Um, today, I, I bit off, hopefully not more than I can chew. I have 13 questions, and I don't know why. It drives me crazy. So if, you, um, if you're new here, welcome. I ask for these questions on my podcast YouTube channel page. Does that make sense? It's called Opinions That Don't Matter. You can go to it on YouTube. You hit the community tab button and I ask for them usually on Mondays. Um, so, you know, check like Monday evening, it should be in there. And then I pick the ones with the most thumbs ups. But here's what I was going to complain about because what a way to start this off with a complaint. But I get annoyed because I don't know why they don't, YouTube does not have it so that the most thumbs up come to the top. So I have to like scroll and try to figure out, okay, this one had 60. Okay, is there any more that have more than 60? I do I have to do that. And then as I was finishing this up, that's the reason there's 13, is I found one that had like 78 thumbs ups that was at the bottom. I was like, what? And then I had to stop, but there was another one that had like 60. I'm sorry. I tried to get them all. But at that point, I was like, this is annoying. Not you. It's the YouTube thing, the community tab, which I'm going to give them some feedback because why wouldn't you have an option where I can change it to show the ones with the most thumbs ups? Anyway, I'm off my soapbox. That's what drove me crazy today because I want to make sure that the questions that you're most concerned about are the ones I answer. And why why they got to make it hard? I don't understand. So frustrating. Okay. Um, but how are you? Let's do a little check-in. What's going on? How are you feeling? Um, I think things, I mean, we have another uh, protest happening in our area today, and the the I waited to do this podcast because the helicopters were just hanging out, um, you know, the police helicopters and all this stuff. And so it just, I don't know what it is about noise pollution, but it just puts me on edge. It's just overwhelming. I'm like, it, it makes me uncomfortable. Um, and I don't know if you feel that way, but anyway, so that's what's going on in my world. But, you know, how you doing? Maybe give yourself a little hug. Maybe we shake it out if we're feeling a little overwhelmed. Um yeah, but I hope you're well. Maybe do something nice for yourself or nice for someone else. Sometimes I think when I do nice things for other people, I get just as much, if not more, out of it. So, yeah. Anyway, okay, let's get into your questions. Ooh, before I forget, um, I did record a podcast with Lewis Howe. I think that's his full name, and I'm sorry if I messed it up. Um, anyways, I'll share it when it does go live. It's supposed to go live in the next like week or so. Um, but I did that this morning, and that was really cool. What a nice guy. And I really like, you know, all of his stuff that he puts out into the world. It's all positivity things. And his podcast, I believe, if my memory serves, is called The School of Greatness. Um, so yeah, check it out. Okay, let's get into these questions because like I said, we've got a lot of them. Okay, 
question number one. Hello, Katie. Hello. Says, I hope you're doing okay. I am. Um, I was wondering if you could talk about emotional numbness and not being able to cry. I've always found myself struggling with showing emotion while talking to others. When talking to my therapist about my grievings and even my trauma, I can't let myself cry. So common. I just feel empty. I've never cried in therapy before. And I was wondering why and what could I do to help allow myself to be vulnerable in front of people rather than using unhealthy coping skills like self-harm to show that emotion when I'm alone. Man, this is so common. Um, And I know that that doesn't fix anything, but sometimes I think it's nice to just know that what's going on in our head isn't crazy and it's not weird. It's actually something that a lot of people struggle with. I don't know if you guys agree with that, but I think sometimes it's it's nice to know. Um, But anyways, with... When it comes to emotional numbness, the reason that we usually have that wall up is more of a protective mechanism. It's kind of like the, you know how I talk about how trauma memories, like we sometimes can't even remember them. We have repressed memories because it wasn't safe to feel them or process them at the time. We might've currently been in like a very uncomfortable, uh, threatening or traumatic situation. So our brain like hides it back. Um, the same is with our emotions. And I think oftentimes we don't feel safe to feel them um, because we wonder what that could mean or, or what that would say about us or does that make us too vulnerable and we get worried about there's so much in there. And so in order to recognize and like learn to express emotions, I think we have to be curious about them. And I know this sounds really ridiculous to start, but tracking your emotions is something I try to get people to do. I don't know if you'll be able to do that. It's okay if you say, hey, that didn't work. But like I talk about feelings charts all the time. Then you can just get on Google and, you know, Google feelings charts, look at images. Tons of them will come up. I prefer the one that's like color coded. It's a circle. I don't know. It's just my preference. But you pick one that works for you and try to identify some of your emotions each and every day. Now you might say, I don't know how I feel, Katie. I told you I'm emotionally numb. That's not helpful. So if that's the case, something that I would encourage you to do is to, instead of identifying what emotions you feel, I would encourage you to create art in some form, whether that be through journaling, because that's that's fine to call that an art, it's writing, right? Through journaling, through collaging, through painting, through sculpting, through music, any of those things, uh, emotions that you know of. So it'd be like... Let's imagine the emotion that we're trying to learn about or create art about is excitement, okay? So I could um, I could journal about what I think excitement is and how I think it might feel to people or what could elicit that response. Um, or I could find songs that make me that like I think demonstrate excitement. Again, we're kind of distancing ourselves from it because sometimes that's the trick. Sometimes, it's so hard to get in, like, to identify it ourselves, to get inside and recognize what we're feeling. Sometimes it's easier for it to just be distanced, to be like, oh, I'm talking about that thing, not me, this other thing, right? That distance can feel a little bit more safe and it can allow us to talk about emotions in a very non-threatening way. And I know this sounds weird, but as you go through different emotions, there'll be certain ones you don't want to cover, even though... It's not personal, you know, like anger or grief or shame or guilt or any of those things. We might want to stay away from certain ones because they feel 
too close to home. And that gives us more information. I take that information to your therapist, um, start talking about those things, um, and maybe diving into what those emotions uh, mean for you. You know, that's kind of like our way in. Because as a therapist, when things are kind of blocked off or there's a wall up that's like preventing me from getting somewhere with you or from you breaking through, um, we have to like, I've talked about it like breaking into a house. Like if you try the front door and it's locked, that doesn't mean you can't get in. You might have to like climb down along the side and break into the little window that goes into the basement or something. We have to find a way in. And sometimes getting that distance between us and the emotions can help us get in and help us better understand what that block is. Okay. So that's one way. And then if you are able to identify or if you're not and you have to do it the other way either way is fine we'll end up at the same kind of not end goal but next step in this where we have some emotions that are difficult or uncomfortable or just emotions that we're feeling every day and I want you to put words to them I want you to use them in a sentence and I've talked about this in the past on my YouTube channel where I'll explain you know why it's so important to put words to how we feel, not just the feelings words. So if I'm feeling angry, I'm not going to say, oh, I just feel angry. That's not putting it into words. What I would say is, um, I feel angry, which to me feels like a fire in my gut. I My heart starts to race. I clench my fists. I tighten my jaw. And I just want to scream. Okay, so I'm putting some descriptive, like descriptive words. Um, you could try to use as many senses as possible. You know, if you want to use all five senses, that's great. But sometimes it's just helpful to be like, I feel my muscles tense, and you know, I feel my brow get furrowed. You don't have to get that intense, but I'm just giving you some ideas to hopefully spark some feelings, thoughts. Um, and then after putting that into sentences, then we need to speak that aloud in therapy. We need to talk about the emotions that are hard and what we think about them and how they feel and all that stuff. And that's kind of our way in because we can't, oftentimes when we're talking about something that's really difficult or sad or upsetting, we can't tap into that in the moment because it's too emotionally charged. And I know that seems like opposites. You're like, but I'm not feeling anything. You're, you're, the emotions are happening. You're just numbing yourself out from the pain, hence the urge to self-injure. That's your coping skill, right? And that's the way that we do express the emotion. So we just need to find some more newer ways to express that emotion. Um, and then we've got to get creative, which is kind of exciting, but also, you know, can be difficult. But that's kind of the idea of like, um, you know, thinking of like using art to express it. So then once we've kind of identified some emotions, what whichever way we came from, we want to use, you know, music, coloring, journaling. Um, and then we can also use like physical activity. Like if it's excitement, we can jump around and dance. If it's anger, we can like punch a punching bag or scream into a pillow or, you know, kick a ball into a wall. There are ways that we can kind of express whatever it is that we're feeling. And I would encourage you to do that. And I think that that physicality of it can sometimes shake some of that stuff loose. Um, yeah. And then then the final part of this that I, I think hopefully is another helpful component is when we come up with those feelings, those feelings words that we're using, let's say excitement or anger, because those are the ones I've been re referencing most. I'd like you to journal. I know uh, you guys, you, you knew it was coming. The J-bombs are coming. <laughs> I would encourage you to write about what it would mean if we express that emotion in life. 
What are we worried is going to happen? What would that say about us? Would it feel good or bad to express it? Are there different ways that we could express it that would feel better or worse? Be curious. Journal about it. Because I think that in that, it gives us some reasoning for the why, the why we aren't expressing it. And my guess is that being vulnerable is too fucking scary. It's too high a price for you to pay right now. You feel too scared, too vulnerable. It's too much and that's okay. But it's important to be curious about it. So if I did cry and show my sadness and upset for the trauma I sustained, let's say, what would that mean? What would my therapist probably do? What do I think would happen? Because sometimes just uh, in CBT therapy, we, or I know people hate it when I say therapy after CBT, but not everybody knows that cognitive behavioral therapy is what CBT stands for. So in CBT, we call this uh, something to the effect of like letting the, the story play out. So if we're going down this whole this rabbit hole of like, so if I express that emotion in therapy, what would that mean about me? Okay, and what would my therapist possibly do? What's the worst case scenario? Okay, what's the best case scenario? What's the most likely scenario? If we can think out those three possibilities, then oftentimes it's not as scary anymore because we've proven to ourselves and our brain and everything that it's okay. Does that make sense? That it's like we have this worry or this stress and the truth is that it's it, no matter the worst case, best case, most likely case scenarios, my life isn't over, I will survive, it will be okay. And then we might feel more open and able to share might, it doesn't, you know, it's like a work in progress, right? We have to be more curious. There's a lot of those other things I talked about, we can continue to do until we feel a little bit more safe. But I hope that that helps you. I, it, trust me, it's it's very, very normal. Part of it is kind of like a defense mechanism um, just to keep us protected. It's like puffer fishing. That's why my whole brand is like puffer fish stuff because so often we do stuff like this where we're like, I'm really soft and squishy in the middle and I don't want anybody to hurt me. And so I'm gonna stick my spines out. Yeah. And you putting up this wall, not letting yourself cry. And so many of you said me too, me too. Um, it's a defense mechanism. It's your spines, you're keeping people away to keep yourself protected. But in the end, what ends up happening by puffer fishing all the time is that we can feel really lonely. And even the help that we're trying to get, we isn't really helping us because we can't be honest. So hopefully some of those tools help. If any of you have other tips and tricks, as always, leave those in the comments down below. Um, if you're watching this on YouTube, if you're listening to this on a podcast, um, feel free to hop over to my YouTube page and leave it um, in the comments there. Okay, let's get some water. I also still, you guys ever do this? Because it is 4.25 p.m. here and I still have some coffee left. It's because I had that podcast uh, with uh, Lewis that I was recording and I forgot, like I didn't drink enough of it because I had ice in it at the time. I was like, it's going to make noise on the podcast. And so it's like I've been milking this coffee like all day, all day, every day. Okay. But I will get through it because it's so delicious. I finally got my cold brew. That chameleon cold brew is like my favorite. And they've been out of it for weeks. Weeks, you guys. So it was a little win that it was. I was able to get it the other day. Okay. Question number two. Hi, Katie. Why do I constantly have suicidal thoughts? Whenever something happens, my initial thought is always along the lines of, I want to kill myself, etc. 
despite not actually wanting to do it or have the intentions. It doesn't matter whether I do something minor, such as a drop a pen or think of a past memory. I'm just curious as to why it happens and what I can do to stop it. Whenever the thought pops in my head, I always stop it or try to change it, but the initial thought is always there, despite trying to stop it. I followed your channel for about seven years now. Ooh, we got an OG viewer, and it's been a massive part of my recovery, so thanks. Of course, I'm so glad. Yay, yay, yay. Okay. Um, a lot of times, this is tricky. So uh, there's a lot to unpack here. Sorry, that's why I'm like, <sighs> okay. When it comes to automatic thoughts, the good thing is that you're changing it, like pushing it out, like, nope. I don't want this. I'm not engaging with it. And it should progressively get less and less common or likely. However, some of my patients who have OCD, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, really struggle with intrusive thoughts. Now, intrusive thoughts, if you don't know, are thoughts that essentially just bubble up in our head for no fucking reason at all. These could be thoughts about like, I'm going to jump off that bridge and kill myself. Or I could just punch that person in the face or Maybe I'll, they, or maybe I could have sex with that person. They're usually violent or sexual in nature, just FYI. So for a lot of my patients, that has been part of it. These random suicidal thoughts boop, come out of their OCD and the intrusive thoughts. I don't know if that's true for you, but I just wanted to put it out there that getting treatment for your OCD and the underlying anxiety will help those thoughts go down um, and they'll be more manageable. A lot of it has to do with like exposure therapy, which I know is super uncomfortable, but I'm just saying that there are ways and there are tools and resources to get better. And there are um, mental health professionals that specialize in OCD. So that's something you could definitely look into. Um, however, another thing, so that's kind of part of it. And I just wanted to address that component. So that if anybody else out there is like, oh yeah, me too. And this is how it, ex you know, why I think it happens. I want you to know that. But then it comes down to comfortable slash automatic thoughts that we have in our brain that are like, you know, I've talked about like ruts, like if our brain is a balloon filled with sand, and we built these ruts, where it's like a stressful thing happens, I think of suicide, that would be like what we're talking about right now, right? And that marble rolls from the event to the other thought or action, which is think about suicide. And we're it's so our brain is so comfortable going there and taking it there, that it does it, even though we have no intention. We're not going to do anything. Why are you still thinking this? Why is my brain still bubbling this up? And I think it's just a force of, it's like a habit in our head. But again, thoughts change your life. So instead of just trying to stop it or ignore the thought, I would encourage you to fight it head on. And what that would look like, and I said to fight the urge, if you guys don't know of this commercial it's a stupid like stick thing you put on your head to stop a headache and it goes head on head on if you don't know it google it it's ridiculous that just made me think of it but i want you to fight this head on in all seriousness meaning that when these thoughts come up okay let's say i have this thought um i just uh you know i'm gonna kill myself i want to kill myself boop that pops up I want you to argue back against it with facts and with evidence and with reasoning. So instead of just, sorry, I got a tickle on my leg because I'm wearing a dress. It's okay. Um, it was like tickling my foot. Anyway, okay. So we would say when that comes up and we have that thought, normally you're like, ah, that, 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 go away. But instead, I want you to look at it in the face. I want you to say, 
that's actually not true. I don't want to do that. And here's why. And then I want you to argue back. And it's kind of like what I've said about like negative thought spirals and all those negative thoughts that we have in general. If we can, we can argue back. Sometimes we have to use those bridge statements, right? To get it from like a more negative space to a more positive space. But if we can't do that, if we like, that's not the problem, right? It's not that I, you believe this and you want to do this. It just won't go away. So we're going to have to fight back with the positive. So this negative thought can get squashed by the positive. So ways that you could do that would be something to the effect of, um, I don't want to kill myself because I actually have a pretty decent life. You know, I like my job or school or I have these friends or just the other day, you know, my friend told me how grateful they were for me and and I felt really fulfilled the other day because I was able to reach out and help someone else or, you know, what would my cats do or my dog? There's no way that I would do that. And I love my parents or, you know, whatever, whatever you can come up with. I don't care what it is. I want you to argue it back with that evidence and be like, no, 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 I see you. And I challenge you because you're not true. And I'm going to show you the truth. And hopefully you keep me posted. But in my experience, it slowly ceases to bubble up as often. Unless, like I said, it's part of OCD and intrusive thoughts, which I know sucks. But then if we treat that and we treat the underlying anxiety, it will go away as well. But when it comes to just flat out random intrusive thoughts that have nothing to do with OCD, that just like, I don't know why this keeps popping up. A lot of times it's just our a habit in our brain. It's like our brain's comfortable giving us that out because we thought about it and maybe entertained it for, for a really long time. And so just argue back, have your facts. And that's something that I would actually encourage you to journal about. I know so much journaling, you guys are probably already annoyed, but stick with me. Um, but if you just are able to journal about the things you're grateful for, ways that you're better today than you were yesterday, um, something you're looking forward to, and maybe something you want to improve on. Like if we just start gathering some of this uh, information, this evidence, what's something uh, good that I felt recently? What is something nice someone said? Can I like copy and paste that? Is it a text? Can I screen grab it and save it so I can look at it anytime? I don't know. Collect some files in, in one way or another of things and people and situations that made you happy, that remind you of why you're there, and the, and the reason that you don't want to kill yourself. Um, and I think it will go away. But I'm glad you're not engaging with it. I'm glad the channel's been helpful. Thanks for being an OG viewer. Seven years. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Um, yeah, you, you were back in the awkward days of, of really slow talking, Katie. <laughs> Those videos, you guys. I know some of you were like, they're not that cringy. Oh my God, they're so cringy. But keep me posted. I hope that that helps. And I hope it helps all of uh, you that also thumbs up that because like I said, these all got a lot of comments and thumbs up and stuff like that. Okay, question number three it says, Hey, Katie, why can't I let myself see and accept that I'm making progress in therapy? My therapist keeps telling me I'm actually that I actually do make progress, but I can't let myself see it no matter how much I try to. I rationally know I've improved. But I still don't really feel like I did. My therapist tells me it's a big thing to keep coming back week after week and talk. Um, It is. But I still feel like I should be doing way more. Who are we comparing ourselves to? I'm just curious. Says I always worry too much that I won't get better and that I'm just wasting everyone's time. What can I do to start seeing my accomplishments? Or could it be part of having avoidant personality disorder? Another question off of this one is, and this was like something that I saw in the comments, says, How do I know how healthy, quote unquote, 
healthy I should be? Should I feel happy, joyful? Um, my definition of doing well is just when I'm not in crisis, people around me make me feel like I should be doing and feeling a lot better. I can logically accept that, um, accept this idea. And then they said, like the above commenter said, even when I make logical steps after dozens of years, I still don't feel happy. I don't. Yeah. So, okay. I think these are, this is interesting. And I love this. I love this question. Um, and someone in the comments gave my first thought on this, which is talk it out with your therapist, which it sounds like this person has, but for anybody else out there who's like, yeah, me too, me too. Um, talk with your therapist about the progress. I try to maybe every six months or so. It depends. Sometimes if they're plateauing with their progress, then I will uh, go back and try to look, you know, tell them how much progress they've already made and like review together all of the steps and stuff. Um, but I'll talk about it with my patients. And if they've been journaling for a long time, I'll encourage them to go back like a year or two and read their journal entry and just see how different their mindset was. And that can sometimes like snap, snap us out of it where like it's a face slap, like, Psh! you know, you're doing better. So that's one option. However, it kind of sounds like it, it's like you won't accept that you're doing better. And my guess would be like from the, even the person who added on to this question sounds like a lot of comparison from them when they're like, people make me feel like I should be doing and feeling a lot better. Uh, people aren't you, their scenarios aren't yours and where you came from to getting to where you're at, they, they don't have that experience. So as much as we can, we try, need to try to focus on our own self and how we're doing and the progress that we have personally made. Because also we all know how much of a happy face and fake phony personality we can put out there into the world just because we don't want people asking us how we're doing or assuming that we're doing bad or good. You know, we can act in certain ways so that people think everything is okay. And a lot of people might be doing that. So it's really hard to compare your life with someone else like that. You know, we don't really know how they're doing. So just throwing that out there. And so the next and the biggest component of this, I believe, is your self-talk. It sounds like we're pretty negative about ourselves and our we have no confidence and our own self-worth is pretty low, feeling like you're wasting everybody's time if you're showing up in therapy and you're trying your best, you're not wasting their time or your time. And going into therapy is never a waste of anybody's time unless you're just not putting in the work and you are like lying to your therapist. Sometimes I've told my patients that that's wasting their time. It's not wasting my time. I'm still showing up for you. I'm still doing my best. I got into what I do to help people, to to hold space for them, make them feel safe and understood and heard. And if you're not utilizing that, that's not a waste of my time. That's just a waste of your time. And then you have to feel worse longer. So think, don't think about it that way because you're, you're making progress. Your therapist is telling you that you are. So you already have that validation, but your validation isn't coming from within. And I think that is where we're getting caught up. And so I want you to, if you don't journal already, journaling is super helpful. You can almost like validate yourself with like, yeah, that was a shitty time. And wow, I did, did come out on top and I am doing better. That can be great. But I want you to notice what you're telling yourself about your progress in therapy. Are you telling yourself you're lazy, stupid, not doing enough? What's this conversation like? Start jotting down those thoughts. I'm sure they like repeat every day, all the time. What are the most common like three to five thoughts? And then I want you to start doing some bridge statements, being open to the possibility that things aren't as bad as we think they are, or that you're not as bad as you think you are, or you're not moving as slow as you think you are. We need to, it's possible that I am making progress in therapy. In fact, my therapist keeps telling me that I am, 
but I don't believe her, right? So we have to be open to the thought. It doesn't mean we have to agree all the way, but we'll slowly build that bridge from like thinking that we're not making any progress to like, I'm doing great and making so much progress in therapy and I love therapy. Um, so that takes time. It takes effort, but trust me, it's worth it. A lot of the the uh, validation, the understanding, the agreement, like agreement that we're making with ourselves that we are making progress, I think is too difficult for you because, um, Ooh, my eye just, um, because you, you know, you don't want to acknowledge, I don't know, because you don't believe it yourself or you prefer to, you know, you're so used to those ruts of thoughts in our brain that go from like stress and upset. And you're like, I'm a loser. I'm not going fast enough. I'm not doing these things. You're like, kind of shooting all over your situation where you're like, I should be feeling better. I should be doing better. And again, in CBT, the best way to undo that cognitive distortion of I should be doing better, I should be moving faster, I should, I should, I should, is to recognize it, understand why it's there, and work to, to shift it. And so my guess would be it's coming from the real way that you talk about yourself and think about yourself and the conversation that you have with yourself. Does that make sense? I hope so. But this is a good one. And I, um, if you guys want me to follow up with it more, you know, you let me know when I ask for your questions again. Um, you know, do like an all caps post or something. I don't even know because YouTube makes it really hard for me to find these. Like in a specific order, but um, maybe leave it in the comments below and I'll, I'll check that. So yeah, but I think that's really where it is because it's like rationally, like you said, rationally, you feel like you have improved and you, you, you know, you have, um, but emotionally you don't agree. And I think it's because the conversation you're having with yourself, but you let me know if I'm off base, totally fine with that too. Okay. Question number four. Hi, Katie. I've never been a hugger. People have commented on this many times and tend to go very still pull back and do a lot of quote unquote bro hugs. I like that. Like the quick tap on the back. Um, it's not a personal space issue though. And I don't ever feel threatened or uncomfortable in that way. I almost feel like I don't want to give away the fact that I might need, uh, might like or need comforting and physical touch. Hmm. I also think somehow I've somehow internalized the message that hugs are inappropriate or sexual. I've heard that from a lot of people over the years. Is this type of a problem common? How can I get over it? Yes, this is very common. Um, and I'm not, I'm, I'm just hypothesizing. I don't know, but my guess would, I have so many questions about your parents and the way that they showed you love. I'm curious about your family and how do, how do they address each other? Like for instance, when I go home, God, my family loves hugs, kiss on the cheek. Sometimes if you don't turn your head fast enough, they kiss you on the mouth. My family is just all about the hugs, man. And I'm not going to lie. I like it. I love the hugs. I love back rubs. I, when I was in, used to have to go to church with my mom growing up, my grandma used to play with my hair and rub my back while I was at church. Man. But that's how my family is. And I think that that's how I was raised. So if you met me in person, you would know this because I'm going to hug you. But because I have some friends like my close friend, Rocio, if you've been watching the channel for a long time, she did a lot of the videos with me about like coming out and um, part of the, she's part of the LGBT community and she talks about her process and what, what it was like for her. Anyway, she does not like physical touch and she talks about it because um, she's told me that it's, it's because like her family's not very affectionate. And so she's always felt really uncomfortable with it. Even my own mom is kind of that way because her family, like on her side, before she met my dad's family, who's the huggers and kissers, um, they weren't very affectionate. So it took my mom a little while to get used to it. And now she's very different. But she, when I was a kid, I remember 
uh, I remember her talking about it, like how it took her a while to adjust. And so it's very normal. And I've also heard um, messages that hugs are inappropriate or sexual. Again, back to the parents. We have tons of members of our community who've spoken up to me about this over the years. And it tracks back to what was okay or appropriate in your house, like growing up with family and friends. And what did your parents say about it? Okay. And some parents unknowingly give us these messages where it's like we try to hug another kid or another family member. And they're like, oh, no, we don't do that. That's not appropriate. Or you don't really know them that well. That's not appropriate. Or that's just kind of creepy. You're getting too old to hug a child like that. Or, you know what I mean? I don't know what messages we heard, but that's why we've internalized potentially that they're inappropriate or sexual. And so that's what I'm curious about. And I would encourage you to journal slash talk to your therapist about this. Like how, what is, uh, how are you physically connected with your family? How, how do they show love? Um, there are five love languages and only one of them is physical touch. So maybe there are other ways that your family has shown love or support. And maybe that's not the way you need it. Like, cause everybody has different love languages. Like mine is, um, is shared activities and acts of service. 100%. Those are like, boom, access services, number one, by the way. But um, I, I think it might be helpful for you to understand your love languages, because I would assume yours might be physical touch. Um, but because you've been told that you that that's not appropriate over the years through family, friends, and environment, it's almost like this disconnect where then you need it, but you feel like you can't get it because it's not okay. And so anyway, I think that's worth kind of looking into, because I, I believe that when we have a different love language than than our family. And instead of our family catering to our love language and talking, not not that they would call it this. I'm not saying that our families are all so, uh, you know, aware and emotionally intelligent enough to like acknowledge love languages and try to alter. I'm just saying that like, if our way of showing love to people was to, let's say, give gifts, because that's one of them too. And other people's weren't, but they would say, I know that you love to give gifts. So I decided to get you a gift too. They would in essence, without maybe even recognizing, understand that we're going to do something, therefore they're going to do it in return. And so if that doesn't happen, if as a child, we really needed physical touch and we didn't get it, it can, I believe, fester into a similar response to someone who was emotionally neglected because that love and affection and attention and care that we needed, we didn't get. And so anyway, I think that that is, is probably part of it. And then I, I, on the, the final thing I want to say, because you said, I almost feel like I don't want to give away the fact that I might like or need comforting and physical touch. And that was really, that really resonated with me because my question to that is, what would it mean if you did? What are you worried about? What is it that you think people are going to say if you did need hugs, comforting, physical touch? Does that, what does that mean? Does that mean you're weak? Does that mean... You're a crybaby? Does that mean you're too needy? I don't know. I'd be interested in what kinds of messages you've received over the years and what you've internalized and believe. So what does that mean? I'd do some journaling, figure that out. And then talking about that in therapy, processing it a little bit, seeking to understand the story of how this came to be will hopefully help you be a little bit more open to physical touch um, in a way that feels okay with you. Maybe it's just like one or two people in your life that you allow that for now until we start to feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, but it does get more comfortable because I can tell you my mom, um, just to use her as an example, 
when I was younger, she was definitely not as touchy lovey as she is now. Um, and I think that's, uh, in, you know, large part due to the fact that my dad's family, we spent a ton of time with and they're all very huggy, lovey, touchy, everything. So I think that, you know, she acclimated, but it took a little while. So, um, yeah, be curious about it. Think about it. Uh, take the time to recognize why it's occurring for you, what messages you received as a child or even as a teenager, like are there different instances? I don't want to say that this only happens when we're children, but it's more more and more likely that it's like when we were younger. Um, and that should help you get over it. A lot of our, uh, you know, not necessarily defense mechanisms, but a lot of our issues in life, I believe can be quote unquote gotten over by just recognizing them, acknowledging that they're there understanding why I don't know what it is but understanding why we do something can be so fucking validating am I right like when all of a sudden you're like oh my god I do that thing because my dad was always like this and fuck man huh and not that it makes it better immediately but just the the understanding of our own process and why we're doing something can be like oh now I know what to work on. And that can be so like a weight is lifted off your shoulders. Um, so hopefully that does that for you, but, but keep me posted. Okay. Question number five says, hello, Katie. Well, hello. It says, do you have any tips on how to stay calm during a task that makes you anxious? I know how to calm myself down before and or during breaks, exercise, deep breaths, ASMR, positive self-talk but I build tension and discomfort while concentrating on the task really quick. And I can't always do a break. Understandably, we have to have things that we can do um, in the moment that people won't know we're doing. Does that make sense? Like in a way, if we can't get a way to do, you know, our deep breaths or breathing exercises or whatever, that what do we do in the meantime? And there's a couple of things. Um, it depends on how it, so it's, it makes you anxious. So we're talking about anxiety. So I have a couple of things that I have my patients do. And you can let me know, you guys share yours in the comments, because there's so many ways that we can manage this. So if we are in the middle of something, there is no way to get away and shake it out or uh, do your deep breaths, your ASMR, any of that thing, like any of those things. I mean, um, I think that another great resource is there's there's like there's quite a few but the first one I want to talk about is uh, putty fidget toys things you can keep in your pocket for instance I had this patient who um, was had this stuffed animal as a kid that she loved it was super comforting and it was essentially falling apart and so as part of our therapy when one of its ears fell it was a rabbit so one of its ears fell off she was so upset and I said hey I think this could actually be good Let's take Mr. Bunny Rabbit, let's sew up where his ear came out, and let's take the, sew the ear up on both sides, so the part that came apart and the part that it was attached to, let's sew that up, and let's put that in your pocket, because you love to rub his ears, and now you have one you can take on the road. You can put it in your pocket, you're an adult, nobody has to know it's like a stuffed animal from childhood, um, and that can work with, uh, in relation to fidget toys that work for people, uh, silly putty, uh, 
uh, any blankets. I mean, it just depends. I even, um, another patient of mine really liked um, things that would catch on the skin on her hands. I know that sounds weird. Sean hates that feeling, by the way. But she loved it, and it was really soothing. And it's like, I don't know if I can even describe it to you. But you know when you're like running your hand along something, it goes, it catches the skin or like a dry bit or like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm doing this justice. But anyways, that was really soothing to her. And knitted things, like knitted um, blankets, pillowcases, sweaters, she loved those would help. So she would, I would tell her to wear the knitted sweaters. If it's summertime, she had this little, little patch, little swath of a knitted thing that she uh, got off of like a, it's supposed to be like a baby, a baby booty or something, you know, like a little sock. Anyway, I'm just giving out these examples because I think there are things that we can have in our pockets and on our person that can be soothing. Also, I know other people who feel anxious wear like weighted vests. And I know maybe they're not super cool and maybe you can totally tell, but if you're just doing a task and it's really that you just can't get away, you don't care like how you look, that could be another option. And then I think um, the, another thing that I've had patients do, and maybe one of the final examples I'll give, I'll see if I can stir up any others, but um, is having a supportive person. So especially if this is at work and we can't get a break, um, Sometimes, like I'll always remember when I was filming with uh, my friend Dodie. If you don't know Dodie, she's another YouTube creator and she sings, uh, super talented and just a lovely human. And she um, had told me that because she struggled with dissociation, she likes her friends to know um, that they can like touch her back. She doesn't want everybody doing it, but she had told me, she's like, hey, you're on this panel with me. Um, do you mind just periodically like touching my arm or touching my back? And I was like, okay, like here, here, is that cool? You need to double check, make sure that I'm not triggering her in any way that I'm being super supportive. And she's like, yes. So if you have a friend at work or whatever, you know, wherever you're at, where you're not doing, you can't do a break, let them know like, hey, um, you know, if I have to be in here for more than 30 minutes, this sounds strange, but it helps me feel better. Would you mind just coming in, checking in on me, maybe rubbing my back a little? It just helps me calm down. Sometimes I get stressed out. You know, it's a weird time right now. You could say that and like brush it off and people will be like, yeah, okay, cool. Um, you know, it depends on your level of comfortability and who knows what's going on with you or how you're feeling. And if you, I'm just giving other options depending on what works for you. And that... Other than I think deep breaths, if you can do the four by four breathing, people don't always notice. I know that you were saying like, um, you know, concentrating on a task. But if you can fake concentrating, I have had patients for years that I'm like, just pretend you're going through your email for a minute, breathe in for four, hold for four, breathe out for four and do that four times. It'll make a world of difference. And it takes, you know, like 30 seconds or something. So um you know, maybe a minute, I guess, just depending on how quickly, but you get the idea. So find some things that you can do that way. Um, yeah, I think that's, those are the ones that, that I've heard, but I would love to hear from you. Like I said, leave yours in the comments. Um, and a lot of it's also just self-talk. I know you're focusing on things, but if you can keep like a, I don't know where you're working, but let's say I'm focusing on, uh, on my computer, I have to do something. If I can have a little post-it note I put up that has like one of those positive affirmations or positive self-talk phrases, you can write those down and put those around um, so that you can still do the thing you can do, but you still have those reminders of the good. Um, or if you can have earbuds in, you can put on like some kind of soothing music or that ASMR stuff, maybe. Um, just trying to find ways to work in the things that work for you normally into you know the situations where you feel like you can't always get a break. So, yeah, I hope that helps. 
But if you have any other tidbits and tools and helpful tips, you guys let us know in those comments. Okay, question number six. It says, Hi, Katie. I've been feeling suicidal and extremely down lately. However, I've been convincing myself that I'm fine. Oh my God, all all the time my patients do this. I've been clean from self-harm for a few months, but these thoughts keep coming up. I'm currently in online therapy and have never met my therapist face to face. I'm scared to tell her that I'm feeling suicidal as I know this information has to be passed on to my mom because I'm only 16. And I know that she would be really upset and angry at me for feeling this way, especially as she is one of the main problems. She's an alcoholic and I haven't told my therapist about this as my mom has told me that she would be extremely angry if I told someone, oh my God, the alcoholic way, the narcissistic way. I'm kind of stuck on what to do as I don't want to feel like this anymore. I hope you answer my question. Have a great day. Yes, of course. So there's, okay, I have a lot to say about this, but I do want to, I don't want to forget this. So I'm going to say this really quick. The one thing that I kind of changed my entire view on alcoholics, especially alcoholic parents, is I don't know if I was talking to, I think I was talking to Barry. Do you guys remember Barry, the psychiatrist that I've had on the channel? He's wonderful. I love him. He's full of such amazing insights. But anyway, I was talking to him a while back about a patient because um, we share we share a few patients over the years. And anyway, I was talking about how I think it was their father no, it was their mother that was an alcoholic as well. Anyway, and I was talking to him about it and I was like, yeah, it's it's been really hard. And and I was like, the more I think about it, the the mother seems like, I don't know, does, does she have like borderline personality disorder as well as alcoholism? Not that I'm trying to diagnose the parent. Anyway, long story short, we were chatting about it and he was like, the one thing people don't recognize, Katie, and he's like, I don't know if you are aware of this, but in order to be an alcoholic, when you have alcoholism, because it's a mental illness, right? So it's a disease, There, it's an addiction, changes can steal the person that we used to know away from us it it becomes narcissistic and i was like what and he was like yeah he goes i believe all people with alcoholism also have narcissistic personality disorder and i was like explain and so anyway and i don't know if you hear the helicopters and i apologize if you do but police doing their police thing um anyway um he went on to say think about it if a narcissist only thinks about themselves they think that their needs are always above everybody else's. They're they're better, smarter, whatever than everyone else. Other people can just be used in their game to get their own needs met. He's like, consider, think about that when it comes to alcohol. Think about how they put everything behind them getting alcohol. They use other people to get their needs met in order to get the alcohol. And you could insert drugs or whatever addiction into that. Um, gambling, stuff like that. And it really blew my mind. And I just want to mention that because when I was reading this, I was like, of course, your mom wouldn't want you to tell someone that she's an alcoholic. That would make her very upset because then she can't keep denying it. And then you won't keep doing exactly what she wants because there's such codependence in alcoholic families. Codependence meaning that we are overly connected to those people in our lives so much so that we believe that if we do certain things and act in a certain way, then we can like prevent them from drinking again. Or we, if we pour out the alcohol, then they won't have access to it and we'll at least put it off for a little bit. We, we are so enmeshed with them and their illness that we too have our own illness called codependency. And if they're having a bad day, we're having a bad day and we're walking on eggshells. And, and that's, can, if you think about it, if any of you have narcissistic parents, that can feel very much like a narcissistic parent walking on eggshells. You don't want to upset them. It could make them worse. Then we blame ourselves for, for their problem. And I could really get into this, but let's focus on this question. Cause I feel like I'm getting off topic. Um, 
I believe that I understand your fear of telling the therapist that you're feeling suicidal and you are correct that they may have to tell your mother. So in, I mean, I would encourage you to, I I wish you could tell, I understand your resistance. I can't tell you not to tell your therapist because I think it's important. But the first thing I would work on telling your therapist is that your mom's an alcoholic because it's not your responsibility to cover up for her problems. That's the enmeshment. That's that codependency. That's what makes an alcoholic home so dysfunctional is because everybody's just dancing around doing what they're supposed to do to, to allow that person to continue being an alcoholic. And it's, it's really, it erodes at our self-esteem, our ability to make good decisions for ourselves. And we can, uh, I've had many patients over the years that I've tried to encourage and support to get them out of those homes. A, a lot of adult children of alcoholics still stay at home because, oh, mom will fall apart or dad will fall apart if I leave. Um, and that's so unhealthy. They're the adult, you're the child. And too often we're parentified and the roles are all switched around and reversed. So it's not your responsibility to keep her secrets. It's your responsibility to get the help that you need. And and trust me, just like I talk about eating disorder behavior or self-injury behavior um, or any of that negative self-talk or shame or trauma, it only thrives in the secret. It only thrives in the dark. I know that that may not make sense. And you're like, no, but I can't talk about it. What does it say about me? You know, it's my mom and I'll feel bad. And I, I hear all of that. And like, I don't want people shit talking my family. I don't want my therapist thinking there's no judgment in therapy. It will probably answer a lot of questions for your therapist about, you know, the struggles that you're having and why you're feeling the way you feel when you tell her that your mom is an alcoholic. And the sooner you do that and shed light on it, it'll feel really scary at first. Like I was just talking with Lewis on his podcast, um, how he was so afraid to share about uh, the sexual abuse he endured as a child. But once he did, he said, at first, I couldn't control myself. I started crying. It was overwhelming. And we can feel like our whole life is over. Oh, my God, I just let this out. I just told people. Oh, oh, oh. And then guess what? We get support. We get understanding. I would encourage you to uh, get online and join an Al-Anon meeting um, in a safe place. Maybe go to the park and get on your phone. Um, or if there's like chat, I don't know, because it's like usually I've gone to these with patients and, um, you know, uh, when I used to work at the eating disorder clinic, I would take the girls to the, the AA meetings um, or Al-Anon meetings. So Al-Anon is AA for the family. So it's for those of us who are in families who have alcoholics in them. It allows us a place, it like gives us a safe space to talk about it. And especially if you're not used to talking about it yourself, you can pass. You don't have to share your story, but it can be, oh my God, so eye-opening and validating to hear from other people about situations that you thought only happened to you, that you thought made something wrong with your family or your situation. And it can really open your eyes to how detrimental it is and also give you some strength and empowerment and resources. You can get a sponsor, someone who you can talk to, you know, about your mom being an alcoholic. Um, Anyways, I think those are all great ways to get over this, to work through this, because shedding the light on your mom's alcoholism will make all of your other symptoms make sense. Like suicidal thoughts or self-injury urges or anything like that. Depression, I believe, is all born out of living with an alcoholic mother. Having an alcoholic in our home, mother, father, sister, brother, whomever, is really, really upsetting to the family dynamics. It doesn't leave any space for our own upset and our own um, 
issues, needs. We can uh, grow up to be people pleasers. Uh, We can always feel like we're upsetting someone. We can uh, have anxiety. It it leads to this slew of issues, self-injury urges, all that, because growing up and in our life, there's never been space for us. It's always been about the alcoholic. Um, Again, back to that like codependency. Um, So anyways, I would tell your therapist about your mother's alcoholism. I would look into Al-Anon. It's A-L-A-N-O-N. Those can be life-changing. And I know you're only 16, but God, I'm sure so many other people out there wish that they had had support and talked to someone at 16. Um, I'm grateful that I got in therapy at 15. It, it, I'm, I know it's hard now. I know you've been living with this secret and this burden for so long, but trust me, once you've shed light on it and you're comfortable saying like, hey, yeah, my mom, she's an alcoholic and it's been really difficult, you know, but I'm working on it, I'm getting help and blah, blah, blah. Um, and also when you turn 18, please, when you finish school, get out of that house her recovery, her process, her, it it has nothing to do with you. It's hers. It's not yours. Don't take ownership. Don't stay longer than you absolutely have to. Um, If it ever gets dangerous, please, you know, reach out to a friend, find somewhere that you can stay that keeps you safe. Um, Yeah, I know it's hard. I know it, it sucks right now. But her alcoholism is not your responsibility. I just want you to know that. And nothing you do or don't do is going to make her drink more or less. And even if she tries to blame you, just know that's her illness. That's part of the narcissism that's that's built into this. And there's nothing we can do to please those people. There's nothing we can do to make it go away. Like I've talked about for years, they have to want to get better themselves. Um, we can't make people get better, unfortunately. Um, so yeah, talk about it. And I'm sorry it's happening to you. But trust me, it does get better, okay? Okay, question number seven. Let me get a little uh, coffee slash water. Okay, now this next one has to do um, kind of with like a sexual assault. So if that's triggering for you, you might want to skip forward maybe like eight minutes, six minutes and see where we're at. Okay, says, hi, Katie. When I was 17 years old, I got blackout drunk at a party hosted by my best friends. The morning after, I realized a guy had had sex with me. I woke up naked next to him. He said I owed him one more time. Fuck that guy. Punch him in the throat. My friends thought it was funny. What? Those aren't friends. They laughed and said it was about time that I lost my virginity. Fuck those people. Oh my God, so many throat punches. I feel like my choice was taken away from me. Yeah. I was so drunk I couldn't even keep my eyes open and sit up straight. I was not able to say yes or no. So you could not consent. I want all of you out there to know that I don't care how much you've had to drink. Uh, if you're drunk, you can't consent. Um, that You're not in the right state of mind. You're not. Ugh. Okay, sorry. I've got to finish this question. <laughs> I know this because my friends filmed me while I laid on the floor. Ugh, those are not friends. I feel like I don't have the right to feel like shit and um, to feel like I had sex against my will, mainly because I was so drunk. I'm 23 now and I am still scared of men. What are your thoughts on how to deal with those feelings? Greetings from the Netherlands. First of all, I am so sorry that happened to you and I give you full permission to cut those people out of your life. I would never do that to even at 16 or 17 in my t- First of all, I like I was such a fucking goody two shoes as a kid, but to, it's, it's one thing to film a friend being drunk and be like, ha ha, so funny. It's another to let someone assault them. Ugh. Um, I think we're past, I'm just running my numbers. I think, I think you have five years to report a rape. Um, 
but you could have reported it. And that's in the States. I don't know. Um, I'm just giving you some options. You could um, report the assault because that, and that guy owed him one more time. Oh, I punch. I just want to rip that guy's head off. Um, you have every right to feel the way you feel. I would encourage you to look online maybe and see if there's some like rape support groups. Um, and, I would like get into therapy, reach out to someone, whether it's through Talkspace, BetterHelp, even Crisis Text Line, just so you get a place to vent about this. I would encourage you to journal about that night and waking up and how that felt and the the blackout because we could have no memory of that experience and how hurtful that was for you. Um, because I think it's the in the stuffing down and the invalidating of your experience from yourself and from your friends who are dirtbags and I wouldn't talk to them anymore. Um but, you know, we haven't given ourselves an opportunity to process the trauma that happened to us. I don't care if we're awake or not awake, if we're coherent or incoherent. I don't care if we're in our right mind or we're overly emotional and we make a decision. I don't even care. I mean, I know in this situation it was not consensual, but I'm just saying for anybody else out there, I don't even care if we said yes and wished we'd said no. It's okay to have these feelings. It's okay to feel like we were violated. I think this in the stuffing down of that emotion, it extends this, it's like broadened your fear to be scared of all men. When really all our evidence points to is that we should be scared of our friends and that dude. Because I don't know what kind of quote unquote man calls himself a man from taking advantage of a completely blackout drunk person. Fuck that guy. Um, So anyways, I think uh, getting into therapy, talking about it, knowing that it's okay to feel how you feel. Anybody would feel that way. Um, being violated in that way, is, is it's overwhelming. And I'm so sorry that that happened. But there are tons of support groups. There are tons of therapists who know how to manage this. One of my closest friends actually um, worked at a domestic violence home for years and dealt a lot with like rape and assault and stuff like that. Um, because if you don't know this, I want you to hear this also. You can be raped by someone you're married to, dating, uh, it doesn't matter. Just being in a relationship with someone doesn't give consent. Each and every sexual encounter requires uh, consent. Um, and I'm not saying like, oh, they need to ask like, if you're kissing, like, is it okay that we keep kissing? Is it okay if I put my hand here? I know people talk about that. And consent is, are we actively engaging in it? Are we wanting it as much as they're wanting it? Um, and I think we should ask, are you sure you want to have sex? Are you sure this is okay? It's okay to ask those things. And the other person should emphatically say, yes, yes, you know, and we keep going. So I know, I know that, um, this is just too common and I'm sorry. Um, anyway, my friend Abba used to, to work primarily with that. And so I know that she personally ran like three different groups on, um, you know, sexual assault and rape. And so I know that those groups exist. I'm sure there are groups online. Um, I don't know how it works in the Netherlands, but if you have, uh, I don't know, like look up like rape assault groups, uh, treatment centers, you can call and ask them if they have any that they're offering. I don't know if people are doing things in person where you are. Um, cause I know every country is a little different right now, but that's something to look into a way for you to get some support because I really want you to kind of like what I was just talking about the Al-Anon thing. I want you to hear from other people so that your experience is in turn validated and also gives you a safe space to speak about it. Uh, first of all, in like one-on-one therapy, amazing. And then in groups so that we have support from other people telling us that 
that what happened was bad. We have every right to feel the way we feel. And they can offer some things that have helped them when they were maybe at the place that you're at now. You know, it's always great to know that people have survived through it and that we're not alone. Um, and again, I'm just so sorry. Um, but journaling, uh, getting a therapist, all that stuff will help. Okay. Stick with it. I promise it'll help. Okay. Question number eight says, hi, Katie, what are emotional flashbacks? Why do we have the feeling but don't have the real memory of the traumatic event? And how do we cope with them? Um, I just researched and wrote about this for my trauma book. And the interesting thing is that we can have uh, like emotional flashbacks or uh, actual like memory without any emotions attached to it. Like the other people were saying in the, I think it was the first or second question where they're like, I can't feel anything. We can have one or the other because memories are stored differently. And sometimes we can recall part of one memory, the emotional component, without the actual memory itself. And there's a lot of hypotheses online about like why this is. And, but it looks like it is because memories can be stored in different parts of our brain. And therefore, some memories are stored in a more emotional part of our brain, like our amygdala. Our amygdala is responsible for, you know, all of our emotional expression, hence like fight, flight, freeze, and like throwing tantrums, right? We're like, ah, it, it rages and it gets excited and it does all of those things. And so they believe that that's why we can have those. And again, like I said, there's lots of arguments online. Um, some people believe that it's it's just a fractured memory because it's trauma. It's like a traumatic memory. Therefore, the emotions can be like the first part out and, you know, and then the others will follow. It's just like body memories. So there's there's a lot of different thoughts about it. Um, but I just want you to know that they do believe there is an actual like brain reason, like neuroscience reason that that happens. And I think that that's kind of cool. Sometimes it's nice to just know we're not making it up, right? Um, and so that's, that's kind of why they happen. Um, also, I think our brain, to be honest, I think in a lot of ways, it gives us what we can handle at the time. And so if it doesn't feel quite safe enough to recall the full memory, it might just start pulling up the emotions or the body memories at first, which I know are all crazily uncomfortable and terrible. And I'm not saying one is less than or better than the other. I'm just saying that could be why. Um, but coping with these, okay? So coping with emotional flashbacks, we need to cope with them the same that we do full memories. I want you to start journaling slash talking about, like hopefully you're in therapy, Um but you can journal about what emotions are coming up for you and what do you feel? Do you feel scared? Do you feel threatened? Um, is your heart racing? I'd want you to try to use your five senses. We need to tap in. I know we want to like zone out, stuff down, ignore it, but there's actual helpful information in there. And then I want you to give that helpful information to your therapist. I want you to talk about like, I feel like this is coming from, I don't know what time, but I'm younger and I feel very vulnerable. We need to start. It's, it's our first clue into our trauma memory. And I know it's fucking uncomfortable. I know it's terrible. But I want you to, instead of leaning back and stuffing down, I want you to lean in and engage. Um, and then also, as far as coping, so when we're leaning in and engaging, I know for some of us, that means dissociation. Our brain's like, I'm out of here, pull the ripcord. So if that's the case, we're going to need to have, or if we just get overwhelmed, right? Some of us can just get so overwhelmed. We're like, I can't do it anymore. It's, it's all I can handle. Um, but we need to have resources. So resources can be people we reach out to. They can be favorite memories we go back to. It could be an animal that we have in our life that we pet or take for a walk. Could be some physical exercise. Could be, um, you know, uh, 
I don't know, like I think I probably already said friend or family member that we reach out to, but we have to have some things slash like resources slash coping skills that we do. We could do like an impulse log or, um, you know, coloring, things like that. But we should have some tools and resources so that when we start to lean into it and let ourselves feel it and be curious about it, write about it, all that stuff, we have some supports to help us calm ourselves back down. Okay. And it does get better. And I think I know this sucks. I don't want to pretend to think this is great because I know it fucking sucks. But I want you to know that this is actually a good sign. It means that our brain and body feel safe enough and secure enough to give us some clues into our traumatic past so that we can start processing it. Um, so it actually is a good sign, even though it feels uncomfortable. Okay. Okay. Question number nine. Hey, Katie, is it possible to unconsciously take on the symptoms of a disorder after having made loads of research about it? I think um, it says it took me a long time to accept that I was suffering from depression because I thought I, oh, you guys, I made a mistake. I thought we had 13 questions, but I think we actually have 12 because I think these are the, yeah, these are the same question. It just split it into, you know, sometimes when you paste, it cuts it and makes it into two. So we have 12 questions. So question number nine, number nine, let's start again. Hi, Katie. Is it possible to unconsciously take on the symptoms of a disorder after having made loads of research about it? It took me a long time to accept I was suffering from depression because I thought I was biased by what I read on the internet. Now I'm struggling to know whether I might have OSDD, which stands for, I'm assuming, um, otherwise specified dissociative disorder. So we have dissociative symptoms. Um, 1B, so they're giving you like the, and I don't know if maybe I'm wrong with that, but that's what I know OSDD to mean. If so, if I'm wrong, let me know. It says, or if I'm unconsciously imitating or misinterpreting the symptoms I've read about. Um, I'm currently seeing a therapist and a psychiatrist just for more information. Um, the truth about it is that when we're trying to find answers, we can definitely pick the wrong answer right? If I am looking for a mental illness that fits the symptoms I'm struggling with, I could find, it could, let's say I'm struggling with generalized anxiety disorder, okay? So I I type in my symptoms to WebMD or some other site and try to ask questions. I get in a Reddit thread and I read about other people's symptoms and what they're going through. I could, because, uh, and not to get too much in the weeds, but because diagnosis isn't so clear and clean and it can often feel like sticking round pegs into square holes where it like it doesn't fit, it doesn't work, but that's what we have to do to get it treated and get it covered by insurance and to fit the ICD-10 or the DSM-5. Um, so we can just agree with certain symptoms and be like, even though we don't have experience with them, be like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's the one that best fits. Okay. So I want to just put that out there. That is completely normal. A lot of people do that. Even therapists in many ways are kind of forced to push people into these boxes, even if we think, well, it's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of this, Um, but it's neither of them completely. So I want to throw that out there. And it's very normal when we're reading about a certain diagnosis and we feel seen all of a sudden, like, let's say we all of a sudden have a word or a term or a a descriptor of how it can feel. And we're like, oh my God, yeah, me too. That's me. That's what I'm going through. That's very, very normal. The real way to know and to make sense that we're not, we don't have the wrong diagnosis or, you know, we've self-diagnosed. A lot of people do that. And I have a video all about that if you want to hear my full thoughts on self-diagnosis, because I think it can be very validating and helpful. But at the same time, you know, it can feel, you were like forcing ourselves into a certain diagnostic box. Um, I don't love that. 
But as long as we see a professional and have them assess us, we're good. Because a professional will understand, like, when you have symptoms, we're going to ask for examples. So we're not just going to say, oh, so you had like racing heart, sweaty palms, like, tell me about a time when that happened for you. I'm going to ask you about scenarios in your life and experiences and situations that caused it and when you remember this first happening. So even if, if, and it's a big if, because I don't believe that we actually like make up a disorder or take it on unconsciously because we've read about it. I think we can uh, attach to certain symptoms and certain people's experiences and be like, yeah, me too, because we want that understanding, that connection. But as, I just don't think we make it up or take it on, but I think we could be wrong about what it is. And that's why we see professionals. That's why we get assessed. That's why we talk to them because they know how to ask the right questions and, you know, make everything make sense for us so that we can get to the right help, right? Like they're trying to figure out maybe if we think it's an anxiety disorder, we're like, hmm, do they have panic attacks? Let me see if I can figure out if they have panic attacks or not. Or is it generalized anxiety disorder? Because there's no panic attacks, but they have constant worry. Or maybe is it OCD? Do they have like obsessions and compulsions? Hmm. And we're going to, within our, like, our brain, because of the way that we studied in school and what we're taught to do, we're taking a bunch of possibilities and we're slowly weeding them out, right? Okay, well, if they haven't experienced a panic attack, it can't be panic disorder. That's not right. Hmm, okay, well, they do talk about worry, but I don't hear any compulsions. Let me talk, talk to them and see about you know intrusive thoughts. Oh, they don't have those, so it's got to be generalized anxiety disorder. I'm just giving that as an example. But seeing a professional is super, super helpful. But I do just want to recognize the fact that um, when we do a lot of research about something, we can uh, glom on to like one or two of the symptoms, even if we don't fully meet the criteria. And I'm not saying that that makes your symptoms less valid or less real. I'm just saying that it is common for us to assume it's one thing because we've read about it online or we've gone down different, you know, chat threads and stuff. Um whether it's Reddit or whatever. And then we take that information and we're like, yes, I am this because it helps us feel validated. It helps us feel seen. Um, and that's fine to do that. Then the next step is to see a professional because there's nothing wrong with doing our own research and reading about something, understanding something that's helpful to a therapist. If you come in and you're like, Hey, I've looked online and I think, I mean, I'm just of this belief. I know maybe some old fuddy duddies are like, how dare you look on WebMD? I'm the professional, but I think it's helpful. So if you come in and you're like, I think I have OSDD and here are the symptoms that feel like me and this is why I don't know if I'm right and that's why I wanted to see you. And then I'll ask some questions. We'll figure it out. I hope that helps. But I don't believe we just take things on because we read them and research them. I don't think that's true. Or I'd have a lot of mental illnesses, you guys. Let's just think about that, right? That's like all I do. <laughs> Even just today, I was, re- I was reading about generalized anxiety disorder to prepare um, for that podcast interview. So yeah, anyway. Okay, question number 10. Hi, Katie. I've always been pursuing perfection, quote unquote perfection, always being the best, being quote unquote thin, getting good grades, etc. That ends up making me unhappy because it's never enough. Yep, keeps moving that, that finish line, right? These past few weeks and months, however, I've been just crying or having mental breakdowns. I've been self-harming for a few years too. I'm 17. And no matter what I do, whether I try to be perfect or just don't do anything, I end up hating myself. How do I ask for help? No one knows about this. Thank you for everything you do. So I have a lot to say about this. It's very common to pursue perfection. And I want to dig into this. Everyone's different, but 
in my experience, and in, in eating disorders come along with this a lot of the time, not all the time, but quite a lot. Um, excuse me, I burped. But the reason that this happens, I believe, is because kind of two things. Number one, it could be that everything in our life just feels so out of control that the only thing we can truly control is ourselves. And so we try to be just the perfect best version of ourselves could be to like prove that we're worthy of love, even though the person, you know, like a family member or a parent or whomever isn't like showing us that love. We're like, I'm going to be good enough that they will finally, we can do stuff like that, right? We can try to harness our control of our own body and self to make our situation better because we don't have control over other things. Okay. It also could be um, because we have a, an addict in our family or just someone who's having a, a tough time, like an a, abusive family member. It could be any kind of like upset trauma, like abuse, addiction, um, domestic violence, any kind of thing happening in our home can lead to this also because I've heard from tons of you over the years and my patients also that when we have, I'm just going to use the addict because I've already been talking about like alcoholism earlier. So let's say that alcoholic parent um, is, you know, unpredictable, right? We don't know when they're going to drink or not drink or how they're going to be and all this stuff. We can think that if we do things just right, then they won't drink, which is, is that, again, that codependent thought process. But we think, oh, if I'm just good enough, if I'm just perfect enough, if I'm just thin enough, if I get good enough grades, if I do all the things around the house, if I'm up before them and get breakfast, if I just do everything perfect, everything, then they'll love me. Then they wouldn't drink. Then insert thing that we wish someone wasn't doing. And the, the problem with this is that it, it we believe that we can change someone else. And the truth is that we cannot. And I know that that's hard for people to hear, but I just want to mention it again, because I think it's really worthwhile mentioning that our actions, yes, we can hurt other people's feelings and we can take responsibility for that. But us being perfect or doing things a certain way isn't going to make someone want to get better. They have to want that all on their own, regardless of us. Because trust me, even as a therapist, man, I wish if I did certain things, patients would get better and they would feel better. But that's just not how it is. They have to want it and they have to want to work at it. and They have to be motivated. And those are, you know, big things that not a lot of people are able to do. So I just want to recognize that and um, let you know. And then, okay, so that's kind of the perfection. I think that that can come out of those reasons. And then it makes you unhappy because it's never enough. Yes, that goalpost just keeps moving farther, 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 farther. It's kind of like eating disorders. They'll say that like, oh, if I get to X number of pounds, then I'll be happy. Well, by the time you get there, it already has moved it like five different times and, and it still tells you you're stupid and fat. So eating disorders lie. Don't believe them. Um, as well as this like perfectionistic thought process. But then it says, I've been crying, having mental breakdowns, I've been self-harming for a few years, no matter what I do. Okay, how do I ask for help? The best way to ask for help, first of all, it's really great that we have like online resources right now, because that means you can make help happen wherever you are. Um, if you can go in person, that's awesome too. But I'm just saying that like, hey, uh, I know BetterHelp and Talkspace offer sometimes cheaper options uh, to those of us in the States that have to pay out of pocket for therapy. And I know in other parts of the world, people have to pay out of pocket for therapy too sometimes. Um, so the best way to ask for help is to first start writing down some of your symptoms. Like you said, like 
self-injury. I've been crying a lot. I feel the need to be perfect and be thin and get good grades. All of that's helpful information. I would write all of that stuff down. And then I would, when you um, make an appointment, I want you to have those symptoms and have some goals in mind. Like, hey, I'm seeking out therapy because I want this and this to happen. Okay. So that's just like for your first appointment. I know I'm jumping the gun a little bit on that, but just that's always helpful. As a therapist, I wish more people did that when they came in for first appointments because it gives me so much more to work with. Um, And so reaching out for help is you can go online and you can do it because you're 17. So you can do it with or without parental consent. I know 18 is the goal and they'll, they may want to include your parent, but you have the ability as an almost 18 year old to not have them be part of it. And you can tell them why. And as long as you're financially able to pay for it yourself and there's a viable reason for not including a parent, most therapists would see you on your own. Um, And they'll always see you on your own. I don't mean that they always bring like parents in when you're younger, but I'm just saying that like they'll see you without parental consent sometimes. So it's worth looking into that way. And I would just um, go online or uh, if you have insurance, I would call your insurance, um, tell them, you know, to send things to your email, give them only your email address or whatever. Make sure things don't go to your parents unless you're wanting it there. Um, Ask them for what's covered. Um, and then, you know, you could also just make some calls, look up therapists in your area and make some calls. Um, and if you're wanting to tell your parents, cause I would assume hopefully your parents are supportive. I find the best way to ask parents is to start with some generic statement like, Hey mom or dad, I've been just having a tough time lately. And they'll be like, Oh honey, I'm sorry. What's going on? And that's okay. So we prepared this. So you say, I'm just having a tough time and I'd like to see somebody, then they'll ask her what's going on. Then we have like three to five bullet points max. And when I say bullet points, I mean short and to the point. For instance, in this scenario, I'd be like, you know, I just, I feel so stressed. I've been trying to be like perfect and everything. And it's ended up making me feel worse. And I don't know if I'm depressed or just having a hard time, but I just really need to see someone. So we have a few things we say. And then usually parents, if they're supportive, are like, well, what can, what can I do? How can, how do we make that happen? We can't afford therapy or whatever. You know what your parents are going to say and you have practiced your answers. So usually we have to tell them what we need from them. Hey, mom or dad, I need you to cover my copay or the cost of therapy. Um, and I'm going to need the car to get to and from sessions. Is that okay? Can we do that? Make that happen. Um, and that's it. We ask them for what we need and then we do the thing. Um, and that's, I, I know that it seems more complicated, but the goal of these kinds of conversations is not to tell them everything about everything. It's more about opening up the door for conversations like this, knowing that you can have more as you feel ready and as you want to, or as they have more questions. Um, and then end with like, thank you so much for listening and thanks for offering to help. Um, this is so important to me, you know, so validating and, and thanking them for, for what they're doing. Um, and that will really help. And then you can have friends that assist you as well if you need some of their assistance in the same way, keeping it short and to the point. Um, and I have other videos too. If you want more about that, I have videos about how to tell a loved one we struggle from depression, how to talk to parents. I have all of those. So you can search those on YouTube as well. But it does get better. Don't worry. There are people out there just like me, tons of me's in the world who just want to help people, help people feel heard and understood and get, get better and all that good stuff. Okay, we're almost there, guys. Two more questions. Question number 11. Hey, Katie, sometimes when I'm having a good day or week, I feel like I've made up all the attacks, sadness, mood swings, etc. that come with depression. 
this is so common. It makes me want something to it makes me want something to trigger me into an episode just so I feel validated about what's going on. I don't know how to feel about it all, and I spend most of my quote unquote good days worrying about whether or not I've made something else up for attention. I don't know if this is common, but it'd be great to know how to tackle this. Thank you. Lots of love. Oh my God, this is so common. And you know why? Because black and white thinking is alive and well. And I don't know what it is about this. Like It's kind of sabotage, like self-sabotage behavior. Um, but the the thing that I would encourage you to say and do to your, like, I guess really just say to yourself, but I'll give you some things to do. But say to yourself when you're feeling good, that I can feel good today, and that doesn't mean that I didn't feel bad yesterday. We Feelings change in the moment, and for some reason, your black and white thinking has got you believing that because you feel good once means that you could never have felt bad before. Sorry, I just hit my mic stand. Um, and that's just not life. Wouldn't that be nice if we feel good? That means that all we feel is good and that the bad doesn't exist. And I'm curious. It's part of the depression invalidation that comes along with depression it's like a a snowball of hopelessness helplessness and like pitted despair kind of and it like builds so much so that it it makes us believe some terrible things about ourselves and our situation such as uh i'm not good enough i'm not worthy enough uh i've made this happen to myself i've done this to myself uh in some ways like i deserve this right it can tell us all of those things and so it's kind of sneaking into your good days where it's like, well, if you felt this way, then, you, then you're making up all that other stuff, right? It's, it's such a nasty, dark, hopeless ugh, voice. And so, okay, so that's what's happening. And it's very, very common. And it's, it's very much because we get caught in that all or nothing black and white thinking, which is what we would call in CBT is like a cognitive distortion. It's like a thinking trap. We get caught in it because life really happens in the gray. It happens in the middle, in the in between the black and the white, right? And so that's what we have to start shifting our thoughts over to. And it's going to be hard, but we can use things like um, bridge statements and tr- and thought tracking to get us there. So when it comes to this, when you feel like um, you feel so like like you're making things up and that you did it for attention and that that wasn't really your true self and all that garbage that it's telling you. I want you to have some things that you say to yourself. Like I said, like um, I didn't do anything to, or like it's a, I, it is possible for me to have felt shitty yesterday and feel good today. And I want you to work against those thoughts. So like I just made it up for attention. I want you to start bridge statementing. It's possible that I actually didn't do it for attention. And then I want you to, so if that doesn't work, if you don't need bridge statements to get you a positive thought, I think checking the facts is really helpful here too, because if we're going to say, oh, I'm just doing this for attention or, oh, um, you know, I just made that all up. I want you to check your facts. So you say, no, you know, actually, I know that I didn't even tell anybody about how shitty I felt last week. I actually just suffered in silence at home. So I didn't really get any attention off of that. Sorry to tell you, negative, shitty, depression voice, but you're a fucking liar. And then, you know, if it's something else, like, you just made it up and be like, I really didn't because I don't even like feeling that way. Like, I'd even encourage you to, to question it. Like, why would I make it up? What, what do I actually get out of feeling shitty? And even telling people I feel shitty. What do you get out of that? It's never good. We all know real depression is fucking horrible and it's debilitating. So don't let it make you believe that you would make it up. Um, 
Anyway, so those are just some tools and techniques that we can do. So I want you to track. I'm going to go back because I felt like I was kind of scattered here. So first is note the times you're using black and white, all or nothing thinking. It probably isn't just in this scenario. It probably exists in a lot of other parts of your life. Like if one thing happens bad, we might catastrophize and be like, oh, the whole day is fucked. I did this one thing. Um, You know, or we might highlight the bad things that happened and ignore the good. We can do that kind of stuff. So there's a lot of ways that we can do this, this black and white, all or nothing thinking. So start noticing when you're doing that. And then I encourage you to challenge it through either bridge statements, if you think that would be helpful. Um, and like kind of the, if you can think of a positive thought or just an opposite, like it is possible to have had a shitty day yesterday and feel good today. I know it's possible. That could be, you know, but also checking your facts, looking for evidence. We have to look for evidence to support the idea that life lives in the gray. Some people have good days and bad days. Heck, I have good days and bad days all the time. I'm sure you've seen them if you've been watching me long enough, like live streams where I'm just kind of down or I put up videos where I was upset about the coronavirus changes and and it's hard for me to cope with it and deal with it. And so, yeah, there you have it. Shitty day, good day. And they both exist in my life off and on as need be. Um, But yeah, checking those facts. And I think that that will really help. But you just have to like pay attention to when you're doing it so you don't let it win. Because so often the problem is we have these like false thoughts or beliefs. And instead of challenging them and checking our facts, we just take them in and we're like, yep, that's true. Mm -hmm. That's a fact. And it's not. So don't allow them just to float by without recognition and arguing against them. And then keep me posted. It's a new muscle. It takes time, but you'll get there. Okay, final question. Question number 12 says, Hey, Katie, how can we cope with being a slow, introverted, easily overstimulated person in this fast-paced world. I always get so stressed out about everything that happens around me and that I need to do as my brain struggles to process all the things. To elaborate, I feel like we are often either excluded because we won't be able to keep up or able to cope with the stimulus, or we have to deal with being stressed all the time. Both don't seem good mental health-wise, and I agree. And there's a couple of things. Um, First of all, I want you to watch my video about sensory processing disorder, as well as highly sensitive person, HSP. I think information on both of those topics will really hopefully shed some light on what's happening. But there are a lot of reasons that some of us can be overstimulated. It could also be part of the autism spectrum disorder, ASD. A lot of us fall into that spectrum. And that doesn't mean any, like, it's not saying anything's wrong with us. It's just a, a a way to explain why we have a tough time with all of this fast-paced stimulation. Um, And then, so my real advice is to get some help about this, to talk to somebody about it, to um, figure out why it's happening and when it's at its worst. We really need to identify our main triggers because for a lot of people, it's when there's like more than one sound going on or more than one conversation being had, like groups are not good for us, uh, places with like restaurants with loud music. It's like, it's so uncomfortable. Um, or when a lot of people are asking us for things during the day, it can be hard for us to shift our focus back to what we're doing. We can get really scattered and feel frazzled. Um, and so just notice for you, what is the triggering the most? And then I want you to see if there are ways that we can limit that triggering. Like, especially right now, because people are working from home, this has been really great for my patients who struggle, first of all, with social anxiety, obviously, but any of my sensitive or introverted people, we can 
actually thrive in this environment. And I don't want people to like completely disengage from relationships that are important to them and stuff. I don't want you to isolate. It's a fine line. But when it comes to work and feeling overstimulated, like we're not going to make it in this fast paced world, I want you to work uh, like, sorry, I'm, I'm kind of scattered, but I feel like too often we focus on the things that we can't do, the things that are difficult, the things that push us over the edge when it comes to our uh, processing ability or our sensitivity to sound and noise and light and whatever. Um, and I realized I said sound and noise and those are the same. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? Like just stimulus, like stimulus in our environment. Some of us just can't deal. So we focus on those things instead of focusing on the things that we're good at. And so I would encourage you to focus on the things that you can do, that you do really well, maybe better than most. And I want you to do those things more. This might mean that instead of working at, I don't know, like in an office where you have to interact with like 100 people a day, maybe we see if we can switch over to a different position where we get to work remotely, or we get to work in this back room, um, only engaging with people through email. We can control our environment. Maybe because of the coronavirus right now, we take advantage and we tell our, our people we work with or other things that we're going to work from home. We can get everything we done. Uh, we usually get done, if not more, from being at home because there's not as many distractions. I think these are all things that we can do and things, action we can take to make our life better and easier. Um, because from my experience, us fighting back and just feeling stressed out all the time isn't actually the solution. I know that it can feel that way, but I'm telling you there are ways to work with our strengths, not with the strengths of other people's. And so that's why it's helpful for instead of just focusing on the things, we want to know what our triggers are. So we do have to focus on some of the bad stuff for a little bit because it helps us to make better choices then to do things that aren't triggering, like to find a job that instead of having six things that, that trigger us and are overstimulating just too much, we have one that only has like two things. And those only happen every so often. So we're able to deal. Um, we we want to focus. So once we know those triggers, we want to focus on our strengths and ways that we can change our life and situation to benefit us. Everybody should do this in general is like finding a way for to work with not against ourselves. We shouldn't have to like swim against the current. We should figure out a way to utilize the resources and tools and with technology there's so many ways for us to to work and do things remotely away from a lot of stimulation and people. Um look into that. Check it out because I don't I do not believe that you are going to have to just be stressed or not, or be excluded. I think we have to find situations and certain career paths and things that that benefit us and don't overstimulate us. I don't believe it's mutually exclusive, okay? So look into that. And I know that someone had shared in the comment below this how they had changed their job and it made all the difference. And I know that this might not be the easiest time for you, but if there are certain things like, oh, we're gonna have a group call at 9.30 a.m. or whatever, um, you know, maybe you ask your boss, say, hey, I've, I have a tough time with those meetings. Um, I'd already talked to Susie over in marketing and she said that she would send me some notes after so that I'd be caught up. And I think that'd be easier. I wouldn't, um, it'd be easier for me to remember everything. And I think I'd be more productive and I'll, I'll be working during that time or whatever. You know, we can negotiate, um, especially if you're seeing a therapist or a psychologist or anybody, we can write letters so that you can get some extra tools and extra resources at work and they can, you know, help 
help your boss better navigate this for you so that they're not fighting against you also. Um, anyway, there's lots of ways we can make this work. Do not feel like it's one or the other, both of shitty options, be stressed out or, or be left out. I think instead there's this third option that is, I'm going to work with what I've got. I'm going to work to my strengths so that I feel better and can engage with the world in a way that is, is pleasant for everyone. Um, I really think that you can do that. So give that a go, but talk to somebody, talking to a therapist will really help. I think, um, yeah, I hope that that's helpful. Thank you so much for listening. I know that was a lot. We got through 12 this week. Um, and I know that that's more than we usually get through. Uh, but thank you for sending in your questions. Thank you for listening. I hope that there was at least one little tidbit in here um, that was helpful for you. And if you're looking for a distraction, you don't want such serious podcast all the time. Uh, my husband, Sean, and I have another podcast called Opinions That Don't Matter. Um, it comes out every Saturday. It's usually about an hour and a half to two hours of us just shooting the shit, being silly, being ridiculous. And you can hop over there and listen to that. I know things can be stressful right now, so we might just want a break. Um, also, we have merch and stuff for Opinions That Don't Matter. And I have my Katie Morton merch over at my channel. Um, I think that's it. Have a wonderful week. And I will see you next time. Bye. your feelings hurt. You can ask her why breakups suck or why you've hit a plateau. Inquire all those questions you've always wanted to know.